I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Arnie Duncan, who, for many of you, probably needs no introduction. Arnie was the Secretary of Education during President Obama's tenure, which included increases in Pell Grants and reform efforts, including Race to the Top. Before joining the Obama administration, Arnie was the CEO of Chicago Public Schools for seven years, which is a substantial tenure for a leader of a large urban school district. He joined Chicago Public Schools after helping to found and run the I Have a Dream Foundation, which, among many things, helped fund education for vulnerable students who had no easy path to paying for college. Arnie is also an incredible basketball player, playing for Harvard and then professionally in Australia. Arnie is currently the managing partner of Chicago Cred, which he co-founded with Lorene Powell Jobs, and which works to radically reduce gun violence and bring hope to Chicago's vulnerable youth. Arnie, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It's such a treat to be able to talk with you. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for the opportunity. I wanted to start with basketball. I was a college athlete as well. I know you played basketball at Harvard, and then you went and played professionally. Um, How did playing a sport so seriously and so well impact the rest of how you see the world? Well, I always say I was lucky to go to some fantastic elementary and middle high schools, colleges, but the the basketball court was my best, best classroom I ever had and just learned so many powerful life lessons. And me growing up here in Chicago, playing on the south and west sides and just getting to know those communities and navigating that and trusting your life to folks whose whose name you never, I never probably knew, just knew, knew them by their nicknames. But I always say sports, uh, it, it builds character, it builds character and how you handle pressure, how you handle failure, how you learn to be a good teammate, all these cliches are just so incredibly true. Yeah. So I uh, it's I can't overstate how important it's been. And I still still uh, go play every morning early. And that's my stress relief that keeps me going. You did end up playing professionally in Australia. How did you end up going from Australia back to Chicago and, and you switched gears and started working with vulnerable youth in Chicago? How did all of that happen? Yeah, so I grew up as a part of my mother's inner city after school program, and she raised my sister, brother, and I literally, literally from the time we were born, it just had this hugely formative impact on us. And I actually took a year off in college between my junior and senior year to work with her full time. And I wrote my senior thesis about a program where really I was testing myself. Most of our friends were, you know, thinking about law school or business school, investment banking. Yeah. And I wanted to sort of figure out was her work a part of who I was or was it truly who I was? Mm. And I, I didn't know what it meant, but during that year, I, I decided that that work was what I wanted to do. So yeah, I was really lucky to be able to play overseas for four years. That was an absolute dream, met, met my wife in Australia. Um, but I, it was um, it, it's a very seductive lifestyle. You, you love playing, you're making money, you're, they give you a house, they give you a car, they give you everything. And I thought, if I had stayed another year or two, I would probably still be living there. It's just so interesting how life turns out. Huh. And uh, my best friend at a basketball tie, the guy who was a star of the high school basketball team, John Rogers, when I was a little guy, he was my Michael Jordan. He he ran aerial, runs aerial capital management, and he was starting to be successful. And rather than buying a you know a second house or a you know, fancy car or a boat, he wanted to set up a, a foundation to work in the community. Hmm. And he knew of our family's involvement. So he hired my sister and I to, to do that work and set up his foundation. We ran an I Have a Dream program for six years. But I was just thinking about last night, sort of crazy that had he not, I wanted to come home and help out, but had he not provided me that opportunity, 
um, I may not have come home. And because he gave me that chance to come back, um, that's why I live here now and not Australia. It's just it's fascinating. It's am- I know it's amazing the way the universe maybe has a hand in, in where we all end up. Yeah. Um, do you, so as you were working with that foundation, you must have been doing some pretty incredible things because the mayor at some point tapped you to run Chicago Public Schools. And so can you talk a little bit about going back to Chicago, what it was like working with kids who were like the kids that you grew up with, the kids who your mom helped um, as you were growing up and, and that you knew as friends? What was what did you do for that community and how did you build a relationship with the mayor? Yeah, we, we ran an I Have a Dream program with the, the idea came from Eugene Lang in New York. And my mother had always done just an, an unbelievable job in the community, but she was always a volunteer. She had many years where literally her program had, had no budget yeah. and she had no ability to help the kids go on to college. And that was something that always honestly haunted me that friends I had who were you know, smarter than me, worked harder, you know, that, you know, more and more committed going to college was, was, that was just what I was going to do. My sister and brother, that's, it was just sort of our path, but so many of our friends didn't have that. And so having someone with John Rogers or his resources that enabled us to work with a group of, uh, 40 children from sixth through 12th grade and then actually have scholarship available, scholarship dollars available for them to go to college. That was a huge deal. We actually worked out of the same church basement as my, as my mother's program. So it was really fun to be able to do that. Um, during that time, we actually started our own small public school, Ariel Community Academy, mm-hmm. uh, because there was no good public school in, in the neighborhood for, for, for our kids and families. So I say as the hardest job I ever had was starting that school for, for 40 pre-K and 40 kindergarten just about killed us, but oh it was an amazing God. time. And uh, school's over 20 years old now, so they're crazy how time flies. And then, then when our, our class of dreamers graduated from high school in 1998, we sort of thought about what do we do next? And we thought about taking another class and doing it for another six years. We thought about starting another school. Um, but it was in, we worked with 40 kids in our, our dream class in our school when it Root maximum size is going to have 400 students, mm-hmm. but the Chicago public schools had 400,000 students in it. And something about the math of that 40 and 400, 400,000, just to scale. And quite honestly, the, the public schools had, had been, you know, sort of our family's enemy all our life. My mother always tried to do from three o'clock to eight o'clock at night, what wasn't happening during the school day. Right. But ulti- ultimately I decided that it's easy to critique, it's easy to throw stones from the outside, but that if you want to make change, if you want to make change at scale, you had to go inside. So um, at that point, I, we decided not to do another Ivy Dream class, not to do a, you know, start another school. And I went into CPS to work for the then uh, CEO, uh, Paul Vallis at the time. And did you have a relationship there or did you purposely just start applying for jobs in Chicago public schools? Yeah, it's so I didn't have any real relationship there and just was lucky enough to, to get an opportunity and uh, to go in and, you know, had culture shock and all yeah. kinds of <laughs> challenges going in. I'd never worked in any kind of bureaucracy before, but there were, you know, there were amazing people trying to you know make a difference. And uh, it, obviously it, it changed my life, you know, having that opportunity. Scale is something that we think about here at the foundation quite a bit because we end up using most of our um, money to to work on pilots alongside of state and city and national programs. But we take on the risk. So we try to apply innovative new thinking to spend government dollars and hopefully, you know, see that there's greater impact. You did a lot of experimenting in the Chicago public schools. You were the leader of the uh, Chicago public schools for 
seven years, which is quite a long tenure for a head of a big urban district. Can you talk about some of the things that you learned there that kind of set you up to be secretary of education for the whole country? What, but what, what did you learn about what works, what doesn't work? We tried to be, you know, really data driven, really really analytical. And for me, it was a chance to try and take a, a lifetime of lessons from my mother's program in a, you know, 46 in Greenwood and try and, you know, touch a lot more kids. So a focus on early childhood education and trying to get our babies off to good starts. We have a lot to expand there. Uh, we had an amazing partner with the Chicago Consortium on School Research, which was an outside entity that just looked at our work and, uh, during my tenure, you know, a couple things happened that were, for me, just hugely significant. One is them doing analysis showing how low the bar was on the state tests, mm. that we were celebrating more and more kids, you know, being successful on the state tests. But when they did the math, that equated to, you know, total lack of success, lack of preparedness to the, for, for the ACT in college. Mm. So that was like a punch in the gut, but it was a really important one. And we you know, had to really raise the bar for ourselves and focus less on getting students to that you know, state standard and more having them exceed and sort of in the advanced category. And then um, a major study they did that focused on how to reduce dropout rates. And our dropout rates were always you know, way too high in Chicago. We've seen you know, 20 years of reductions, which has been great, but still too high, still a long way to go. Yeah. But it's almost an obvious point, but we just didn't know it, that there's this tremendous correlation between how people do, how students do during their freshman year with classes and whether they eventually graduate. And obviously, almost no one drops out their senior year. If you get to that point, you're going to be successful. So we put a huge amount of resources and energy in our situation. Then you had to stop doing other things because of the resource constraints. But really, you know, concentrating on freshmen on track. Mm-hmm. And so how do we do a bridge program from eighth grade to ninth grade? How do we make sure that every freshman had an adult in their life at that school who's on top of them every day? And if they missed a day of school, they were checking on them. They weren't waiting until the end of the first semester or something when it's too late. And so really trying to, you know, catch you know, early warning signs and, you know, catch them early. A big focus on students completing the, the FAFSA form, which you know, unlocks this, you know, tremendous amount of money, you know, billions and billions of dollars. But a lot of our kids just weren't filling it out, didn't have the help to do that. Yeah. That you could have great grades, great test scores. If you don't fill that form, you, you aren't going to school. So, you know, things like that, big focus on after school, making our schools community centers based upon mother's work and worried a lot about our kids being hungry. So we, we served three meals a day to tens of thousands of kids and send a couple thousand uh, kids home on weekends very just, just discreetly with a, a backpack full of food because we worry about them not eating, over, eating over the weekend. So lots of, you know, some big things, some small things, but trying to be pretty focused, not trying to do 20 different things. Yeah. Um, you're trying to move a bureaucracy. Uh, it's, you know, trying to take two or three themes, two or three strategies at one point, at, at any point in time, and try and drive them relentlessly, you know, every day. And again, be, be, this, this work does nothing if it doesn't humble you really be humble about what's working and not and um, be willing to change course of things if you're not making progress. It sounds like a lot of the things you did were came out of data that you got about how the public schools were performing. And did you introduce, you know, kind of heavy analytical strategies into your role? Or was that something Chicago Public Schools always did? Was it always very data driven and how it made decisions? Yeah, no, I tried to emphasize that. I think, you know, we all have a you know, our, our experiences, our hunches, our intuitions, yeah. you know, many of us are lifetime experiences, but I think that's by definition, obviously very narrow. Yeah. 
And that can lead you down some great paths, but it can lead you down some, some, some places where you shouldn't be. And so just trying to look big picture and look at it you know, dispassionately. And if the news was great, great. If the news was bad, you had to suck it up and change. But it can't, you know, I always, as smart as folks were, as smart as our team was, as committed as we all were, um, we have to look at what's actually changing kids' lives. And absent that, again, that, that for me is a little bit of a little bit of ego or a little bit of something that doesn't serve kids well. So just trying to be really cool and dispassionate, objective and move, you know, go, go where go where folks are telling you that's what's making the biggest difference in, in children's lives. Or that w- that would be that action, that strategy would make a huge difference in students lives um, if you went after it. So then once you joined the Obama administration as the secretary of education for the country, how, that's a very different landscape in terms of how you look at public school. And what did it look like when you moved from Chicago to you moved to the head of the country? Did, how did like how did things change for you in terms of perspective on um, education across the country? Yeah, well, you go from four hundred thousand students to fifty-two <laughs> yeah, million students. Right. That's another right. another scale. And you know, obviously, my uh, my knowledge of, of urban education was was pretty 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 good, yeah. but my rural street cred was not very high. <laughs> so I spent a, a huge amount of my time in rural America and really just trying to learn. I said, you know learn anything sitting behind a desk in an office someplace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting out, you know, hearing those stories, obviously most of my experience was K to 12 and higher ed is a big part of the, the portfolio. Yeah. So spent a ton of time at community colleges at four year universities. Um, I'd never been um, on a reservation before. And I thought I knew you know, poverty and challenges here in Chicago, but I'll never, my first time going to reservation, I've never seen anything like that in both the, the hope, but frankly, the heartbreak. And so I spent a lot of time and tried to you know, speak at Native graduation, uh, tribal college graduation every year, but just trying to get, get outside my comfort zones. We would do bus tours every year and just go to places that you you literally couldn't couldn't fly to or couldn't get to easily. And those are just some extraordinary, I can give you a million anecdotes of just extraordinary schools that I saw and places I visited um, that, that were part of my experience. So you try and build a team of folks who are, you know, their, their strengths are your weaknesses. Mm. You try and get people who will always tell you the truth and tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. And the same thing, probably even more so, trying to be laser focused on a couple strategies and not try and be all thanks to all people. Um, otherwise, you just perpetuate the status quo, which far too often is mediocrity, frankly, in education. Yeah. And, and one of the big outcomes of your work was Race to the Top. Was one of the key initiatives during um, your time in the administration. How did what you saw fuel that strategy, and and how did you how did you decide how much money to put into it incrementally, and and how does the government incentivize that that money is used correctly? Because I feel like we're kind of looking at the same thing now with ESSER funding, and you know, and is it being spent well and for the right things? Yeah, there, there are a couple lessons, and you do everything imperfectly, and there are you know, plenty of mistakes that you know, we can think about or talk about and things we do differently. But first of all, I'm a big believer in, in carrots, not sticks. And so whatever you can do to provide incentives to have folks behave differently. And when uh, the previous when I was in Chicago, the previous secretary, Secretary Spellings, had put out some, some money around you know, teacher evaluation, doing things and things differently. And we applied with the, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union uh, for those resources and God, I forget what it was, maybe you know, 20 million, but for us it was a ton of money. And I always remember that, you know, 
trying to do that work absent that carrot honestly would probably never have happened with a union, but they having a chance to bring some resources into Chicago together, uh, enable us to behave in some, some ways that just wouldn't have happened organically. So that was a, a big lesson to me. And then just a few things that, um, that I learned. So that the idea of you know, state standards being too low, which we faced in Illinois, and that was part of you know, what, what I learned uh, from the consortium. Well, unfortunately that was true all over the country. Hmm. And that, that standards were so low that most students who are meeting them weren't anywhere near prepared to be successful in college. So use the race to top funding to incentivize states to raise standards. Um, try to talk about turning around underperforming schools that we have dropout factories where the, where the average student is dropping out, where the norm is dropouts. Right. We, can't, we can't sort of accept that. It's, just, it's, it's condemning children to, to poverty and social failure. There are no good jobs out there, as you know. Uh, without a minimum, minimum of a, of a high school diploma, you know, being able to look at look at data and, and, and just, you know, trying to, again, encourage states to do things that they probably knew were the right thing. But unfortunately, far too often education politics gets in the way of what's right for kids and make it a purely voluntary uh, initiative. A couple big lessons. One at that time, uh, we put out you know four billion. That that was a sounds like a lot of money. Is a lot of money. Yeah. But we spend six hundred fifty billion a year on K to twelve. So it's actually less than one percent. Right. So it's it's not that much. The thing that was fascinating. We are hoping that you know maybe if we were lucky, we'd get half the states to apply. We basically got 45, 46 states to apply. Almost everyone came in. That blew me away. But maybe the biggest lesson was that we saw as much or more change in some states that didn't receive a nickel as some states that received literally hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, yes, the money's important, but it's, it's the strategies, it's the policies, it's what are you doing that's in children's best interest that is the most important. And so lot, lots of Lots of amazing lessons coming coming out of that. So for the dis- for the districts or the states that didn't come into the program but still made a lot of um, changes that were successful, do you think just knowing the data that you were sharing with them inspired them to just think differently about how they're executing in their state? Well, what they did, we just didn't have enough money to fund everybody, so they applied. Okay. And for them to apply meant they had to make some policy changes uh, and do some things differently. And the fact that they went through that exercise, that was the most important. You know, the money's helpful, but that was the most important piece of, of what was happening. And um, the other lesson, just was so lucky in the first first round, the way these, uh, we had all these, you know, blind scoring to make sure everything was non-political and the, the, the finalists would come to me just with letters, letter A, letter B. And uh, the first two states, one was uh, Delaware, happened to have a Democratic governor, one was Tennessee that happened to have a Republican governor. That was like, thank God, that was just so, <laughs> so critically important because if it had been two Democrats or two or you know, whatever, right. just just how it worked out and ended up those two governors, Jack Markell in Delaware and Bill Haslam in Tennessee, it actually, in hindsight, isn't surprising that they rose to the top. Those were two extraordinary education governors and um, two, two you know, friends who I think will be friends forever. I just had so much respect for their leadership and hard work. But just it, this stuff can't be political. It can't be, I would say, education should be the ultimate bipartisan issue. There's nothing Republican and Democrat about more kids getting access to pre-K and more kids going to college or reducing high school dropout rates. And just having leaders across the political spectrum who are really trying to fight for kids' lives and get to give them a chance, um, that's just so crucial, so critical. So, so I know you're doing something different now, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But I'm curious, you know, with your education hat on, how you think about the impact of COVID on education and on our kids. 
Um, it, it feels like this is a time where we should be leaning heavily into their, you know, emotional, social, mental health needs. It, it also, it it feels like we maybe have our, their losses, you know, over the last year and a half somewhat defined, but probably not terribly well defined. And yet those losses in things like math and, and other subjects where you really need to build on the past um, could, you know, we could be leaving kids in deep need. And so... How do you think we should be approaching this recovery or reinvention of education? Yeah, that's such an important question. I think it's been a, an absolutely devastating time for, for young people across the country and probably tougher than any of us fully realize. So you hit on the, the first part of it for me of meeting uh, the social and emotional needs of children. I would just add the physical needs, feeding kids. Yeah. And I did a weekly call throughout the pandemic with folks who are doing the, the food service, the food distribution, school districts school district across the country, and they kept those supply chains going every day, uh, regardless of whether school buildings are physically open or not. It was truly, truly heroic work. And schools aren't just a place of education. They're social, social safety nets, as you know. Yeah. So we had lots of kids dealing with, you know, fear and trauma pre-pandemic, you know, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, the amount of families who have lost family members, amount of families who have lost, you know, maybe been living paycheck to paycheck and doing okay, and those paychecks disappeared. That level of trauma has only, you know, you know been been exacerbated. It's grown grown exponentially. It, it's obviously, you know, so unnatural for children to be away from each other. Right. We are all by nature nature social beings. That's what human beings are, and you know, kids, you know, probably much more so than than us. How a kindergarten or first grader zooms all day is like it's inconceivable to me and totally. same thing teenagers you just want to hang out with your friends and we we, we took all that away from kids for you know we've had three school years impacted so that's that's the baseline of meeting students but also teachers and and uh, principals and you know whatever school staff yeah. meeting them where they are now working through whatever challenges they are for me, that's the foundation and then the academic uh, foundation of house and the academic stuff is built upon that foundation. But after that foundation, we're, we're kidding ourselves. Um, moving on to the academic side, I actually don't think we've done a great job of really identifying where students are. And I think for me, you have to assess that. You know, I, I wanted every school district to assess every kid at the start of this school year and, you know, then assess at the end of the school year. And I would say it's like going to the doctor, right? When I go visit the doctor, they, they ask a series of questions. They do some tests. They don't just start prescribing a bunch of random stuff to me based upon what they think. And so for us to, to not really know is this kid, there'd be a small percent of kids that absolutely accelerated where they learned better, yeah. you know, in a, in a remote virtual uh, environment. But that's a, a small, small percent. And most kids are three months, six months, nine months, 12 months behind, whatever it might be. Um, something that's been underreported is there are between two and 2.5 million students who never made the transition to virtual school. Right. They just disappeared. And we just can't afford to have a lost generation of kids. And that's a story I haven't actually seen just school enrollments this year versus you know the previous year. Um, I know here in Chicago, it's down significantly. And, and we, we know the kids that are just disappearing. Those aren't kids with all the advantages. Those aren't kids with a lot of privilege. Yeah, And so- Literally, you know, this is not a high tech solution. This is door to door, knocking on doors, finding kids, sitting on porch steps, sitting on living rooms, finding ways to to reconnect those that have been disconnected for far too long. It's uh, I can't overstate how important that is. And you know, you talked before about incentives and carrots versus sticks, but is a is a carrot in this moment 
you know, for those students, especially in attracting them back to school, it, there's so much need, as you identified, around, you know, kind of basic human needs, food and shelter and safety and love. And um, are there ways, do you think, for schools to provide more of that? Or is that just asking too much of an, a, you know, an organization? No, it's, it, it's, it's never asking too much. And I I just think schools have to be our community centers. To be, to be clear, school systems don't have to do this all by themselves. Right. They can bring in nonprofits. They can bring in food depositories. They can bring in churches. They can bring in folks to do tutoring. But I think the school buildings have to be the, the, the center of every community. And for all of our challenges and all the inequities across the country, we have 100,000 school buildings. They're in every neighborhood, rich, poor, black, white, Latino, whatever. And the buildings always say that they don't belong to the principal or to the union or to the janitor. They belong to the community. These are public assets. And those buildings should be open, you know, not six or seven hours a day, but 10, 11, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, 11, 12 months out of the year. And let's figure out, you know, after school, who needs tutoring, who needs access to dance or drama or whatever it might be, robotics or Model UN or, or yearbook. Let's serve, a, let's serve dinner at night. Let's do GED classes and ESL classes for families. Let's do you know, potluck dinners. And again, using the school building, not just relying on the public school system, but let's bring in all the partners to, to work together to serve children and their families right. and their parents. And I promise you, I've seen this all my life, where families are learning together, um, when they're working together. When you have two generations, even three generations of, of family members you know, doing some positive things together, great things are going to happen for kids. So it's never asking too much um, to use those facilities, um, but rallying the entire community behind this effort. Um, that's what we desperately we desperately need now. We have to have that. So, and is that, ta- I just switched gears to Chicago Cred, which you founded, co-founded with Lorene Powell-Jobs, and you're now the managing director of that organization. Is Is that part of why you moved to this work is because it's so critically important that the community rallies around our youth? Yeah, it's a little, it's honestly a bit of a, a tough story, but I'm just always honest. It's, you know, growing up, I talked about playing basketball and I, um, I started to lose friends to gun violence when I was a, a teen. And some of those guys who, who, who died were people who actually protected me and sort of gave me safe passage in our neighborhoods. And at that point, I honestly, it didn't, I didn't really know to talk to anybody or do anything. You just sort of bottle it up. And it, I think it, it shapes you and probably scars you in some ways. It's a little bit difficult to talk about. And we talked about some of the, you know, so that was as a team. Fast forward 20 years to when I'm running the Chicago Public Schools. There's a ton I'm proud of. We touched on some of, the, some of those, those things that we did that I, I feel fantastic about. But on, on my watch during my seven and a half years there, on average, we had a, a student killed every two weeks due to gun violence. It's just a staggering rate of loss here. And that was by far the hardest part of my job was, yeah. you know, meeting those families 99% of the time after they had just lost their child and going to classrooms. There was an empty desk and trying to make sense of the census to a traumatized class of kids and going to those funerals. And very naively in hindsight, when our family moved to, to D.C. Uh, in, in 2008, uh, I, I thought things couldn't get worse here in Chicago, but unfortunately things got a lot worse. And so for me coming home, this was the crisis facing the city and to, to come home and to, to not work on it just, would have, just wouldn't have felt right. And I have to say we're, we're, we're motivated by our successes, but we're haunted by our failures. And I absolutely felt that 
felt that I don't feel I, I know that you know me, all of us as adults, educators, whatever we were, leaders, we failed to keep our kids safe, and we were continuing to to not keep our kids safe. And our kids in the south and west sides here, growing up with a level of fear and trauma that's it's it's unimaginable, and it's it's never fair, and it's it's, it's never their fault. Yeah. And so uh, just coming home and trying to work directly on the gun violence issue, we've been at it five years. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's, it's honestly the most heartbreaking, but it's also the most inspiring work I've ever had the privilege of, of doing. How, how is it going and how do you judge how it's going? Well, my metrics are very simple. It's, it's homicides and shootings. So my scorecard is pretty basic this year. We started in 2016, which was a terrible year in terms of violence. And 2017, 2018, 2019, we saw double digit reductions. So that was very encouraging. Um, last year with the pandemic and then post George Floyd's murder was just a horrific year here in Chicago and across the country. But we saw a 50% spike in those six or eight weeks after George Floyd's murder. That was one of the hardest times of my life. We had three of our young men killed. We had one of our staff members killed. We had a 20 month old baby son of one of our, our men just on the way to, to laundromat with his mother in the car seat killed. It was just a, it was a unimaginably difficult time. Um, this year is, we have not gotten worse, um, but we're not, you know, we're not getting, we're not getting much better. So we have a, a long, long way to go. Um, we're working with about 500 men now in the, um, We've got lots of, uh, you know, we've got randomized control trials going stuff. Northwestern's doing a lot of research and, what we've seen is a 50% reduction in victimization, a 48% reduction in arrests. So we're seeing some very encouraging results. And so I'm very hopeful, but we have to keep scaling. We have to keep working with, with more and more folks. And we're just not, we're not at the scale that we need to be with our, with our partners. And uh, so in a dark time, in a difficult time, actually more hopeful, more confident than I've ever been, but also frustrated that this is, you know, public safety, I think is a public good. <laughs> We're doing this. The vast majority of the funding is coming from the private side, from, from uh, philanthropy, as you said. Emerson's been just an amazing partner. Yeah. But ultimately, to scale, you got to get the, the city, the state, the county, the, the federal government to, to step up and, and take this work of violence, violence inter interruption, violence prevention to scale. How, how do you get the government to lean into something like that? Is it too political for the government to want to lean into it? Because, no. I mean, <laughs> just reading up on your work, it's it's very cost effective what you do. Yeah, the ROI, Bain has done a huge pro bono study, is like 19 to 1. So take out the trauma, take out the heartbreak. Right. I can make a very compelling economic case. Yeah. And we know how much every shooting, every homicide costs the city about 1.4 million. And just to see the, the revenue we're losing in terms of lack of tourists and lack of business and people leaving the city, it's, 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 it's devastating. Yeah. So it, it is... Um, it's also it's a good question it's not too political i think it's counterintuitive and the idea of of working directly with men and women who are caught in these cycles of violence who are most likely to shoot and be shot we we this is this is an incredibly gray world mm -hmm. <laughs> um who's a hero who's a villain um ultimately you have to believe that the vast majority of people will, people are capable of redemption um are capable of uh, of change and that's the joy of my work. I literally get to see that every single day. But often people you know, think of a, a black and white and it's, it's super complicated. One of the most invaluable members of my team, um, he, he's in charge of all of our work and bar, all of our alumni. He actually killed a good friend of mine when, when, um, when we were in high school and I, I didn't know him. 
I hated him all my life. He served 20 years and he's come out and he's dedicated his life to giving back and serving. He's, he's extraordinary. And we have, again, fortunately, unfortunately, we have a number of members of our team who have taken the lives of others. And, um, but they, they, today I would argue are, are invaluable, are heroes in this work, but it's, um, it's, you have to be open to understand that you have to be open to dealing with, with situations that might make you uncomfortable or frankly fearful. Yeah. But understand, I would say that the, these men are not the problem, they're the solution. <laughs> they're going to lead us to a safer city. And absent them, we have um, we have no chance. But it's a different it's a different way of thinking. So is there a calculus that you use then or a set of strategies that you use to help shift, I guess, the comfort level and to, to so that the folks that you're working with feel like they're being cared for and, and are able to start to see a different... I, I guess look through the trauma or start to deal with the trauma that they're suffering from. How, is it a, is it repeatable? I guess and, and scalable. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. And we, we've learned a lot. We're, we're making trust me. We're making fifty mistakes a day and learning learning really hard lessons. And we've evolved. But there's sort of five p- pillars to our work. The first is we have an amazing street outreach team. So these are guys with tremendous credibility. You know, with the gangs, with the cliques, and they they they're basically our HR function. They recruit guys into our program. When guys come in, we match everybody with a life coach and not all, but many of our life coaches are folks who have come from the, this world, come from the streets, been incarcerated. And we always say experience can be the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your own, your own experience. You can learn from somebody else's experience. And these, these life coaches are just having positive role models in our men and women's lives are, are you know so critical. You touch on the trauma. I can't overstate that. Um, every every participant has a has a clinician, has a therapist. We have 17 full-time clinicians on staff. And I promise you, we're not doing enough, but we're saying that hurt people hurt people and that's real, but healed people also help to heal, not just themselves, but the community and helping folks work through a lifetime of trauma is, is absolutely critical. Um, we have an education piece. We've had many, many folks graduate from high school. We had a, a, a drive-through graduation ceremony a couple of weeks ago. It was just unbelievably moving. And we actually have a set of folks in college now. And then we have a jobs team. And we're trying to move folks from the illegal economy, which here in Chicago, unfortunately, leads to violence to the legal economy. And we have 40 employers who are hiring. We have folks working in hospitality and culinary and construction and manufacturing. We have two guys working at law firms downtown, which is amazing. One working at Deloitte. And we're doing more and more community service. We, we I really want our guys to see their ability to not just be the recipients of service, but the doers of service. And we actually just got back. We were down in New Orleans this weekend, Friday, Saturday, helping to, to rebuild homes there. And it was just an incredibly powerful, moving trip. And to see we had 30 folks, our staff and team, you know, staff and participants, and there was no line. Everybody's just working incredibly hard. And to hear so many of our participants, you know, talk about understanding despite their own challenges. One of our women there working, one of our hardest workers, she, she's been shot 10 times. She's been, she's been through it. But her talking about how thankful she was for what she had and how much she wanted to give. It's just, a, that's, I think that's part of the healing. It's part of the transformation is having those kinds of opportunities. And we're going to continue to try and do more of that. So last question, you, you've gotten to see so many different parts of the, of America and all different types of school systems. And what, what advice would you have for, you know, those who are sitting in suburban schools and more privileged environments who just can't even really relate to the things that you're saying to me today how do we come together with folks who are more vulnerable? What can um, parents and kids in those situations do to just help care for and make everything better? 
You know, I think if, if the pandemic didn't teach us anything else, I think it taught us how interconnected we are, that if, that if my family's healthy, but my neighbor's family isn't healthy, then nobody's safe and, and vice versa. And I think that's a challenge, whether it's public health or education or, you know, around violence, which is a public health issue as well. It's just, we have to, for us to, to make progress as a country, yes, we're all going to try and take care of our own kids. That's an innate, you know, that's just, human nature we should do that there's no problem with that but if we stop there then i think that's where the problem arises and we have to start to we have to start to care about our neighbors kids as much as we care about our own and and their health and their well-being and again if, if they're not healthy and safe then ultimately i don't think i don't think we are any of us and so it is being willing to make ourselves uncomfortable it's being willing to stretch ourselves it's being willing to build relationships and obviously you know, Zoom and you know, the ways to do this where you don't all, you know, so you don't have to physically always, you know, go someplace. But for me, it's bigger than education or whatever. This is really about how do we stitch our democracy back together. We have to find our, our commonalities and, and what brings us all together in our common humanity. And I would just urge folks who are lucky enough to have, you know, some relative, you know, privilege or comfort or whatever it might be that, um, please stretch yourselves and please reach out and please find ways to help other kids and other families be successful. And all I can say is that in my toughest situations, wherever I've been here in Chicago, across the country, every parent wants the best for their kids. Every parent wants the best for their child. They just don't all have those kinds of opportunities. And it's up to us to try and close that gap between those aspirations, those dreams, um, and the reality of opportunities in their life. Arnie Duncan, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really feel very lucky to have had this conversation with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Arnie Duncan, former Secretary of Education and current managing partner at Chicago Cred. To learn more about his organization, go to chicagocred.org. That's chicagocred.org. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.